And now hear God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 10, continuing our study in this book. Hear God's holy word. Samuel called the people together to Yahweh at Mizpah and said to the children of Israel, Thus says Yahweh God of Israel, I brought Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God, who himself saved you from all your advers uh, adversities and your tribulations. And you have said to him, No, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before Yahweh by your tribes and by your clans. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, today we come to your word hungry and thirsty and uh, in many ways battered and uh, uh, abused by the world and by the sins of others and by the anxieties of our age. We come to you for respite. We come to you for solace. We come to you for instruction. We come to you for encouragement. And so, Father, I pray that each of us might be ministered to by your holy word today. And to whatever extent you might use me, make my words articulate and clear Clear our minds, deliver us from all distraction, deliver us from all error, we pray. And may your Holy Spirit minister to each of us now in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. People of God, I can just about guarantee it. In fact, I can guarantee it. Anytime you set out to make a change in your life, you make a plan to start fresh and try something new, I guarantee you that you will immediately face opposition you will immediately face something that sets all of your plans spinning and your whole uh, design into a tailspin. If you say, I'm going to start Monday on a new diet, that's the day it's somebody's birthday at the office and they bring in cakes and, and muffins and cupcakes and there's gonna be a challenge. Challenge is great and small. If you uh, decide to uh, embark on a new exercise regimen or, or a new budget or a new program of time management, you can expect something to happen to challenge your new plan right out of the gate. Something will take place that will test your new resolve to the limits. So, so if it's a new budget, you say, we're gonna stick to this, we agree on this, this is our budget, this is our plan. You, I can guarantee you as soon as you write it down, something's gonna break, some appliance is gonna fail, some great crisis is gonna happen, and then the question comes, are you going to stick to your plan? Are you gonna to stick to your guns? Are you gonna keep your convictions? Or are you gonna compromise and collapse and give in? The same thing goes with transitions in life. When you are married, when you start a new job, when you move to a new city, there is always this moment of truth. Something always stands in your way. You're put to the test. And now it's time to either move forward boldly, courageously, or retreat and your future depends largely on how you answer the challenge are you up to the task or does your resolve dissipate and you melt under the heat of opposition we've experienced that so many times it goes without saying you can expect when you have a plan it's going to be opposed. And we see this in life, we see this in the scriptures. In almost every story of the Bible, you see that just as soon as someone is called or commissioned or ordained or anointed in some way, immediately after that anointing, after that commissioning, there is a challenge. 
Abraham is called away from his family, away from his father, and away from his father's idols. And he gets called to this land of promise. And what happens immediately when Abraham gets to that land of promise? There's a famine. And then he has to go down to Egypt and deal with Pharaoh who tries to steal his wife. This is not, this is not a, an invitation for a vacation. This is an invitation to a challenge what God issues his people. When Moses is called, he immediately has to go wrestle with the Pharaoh of his own day. In, in, uh, later on in, in 2 Samuel, David, well, no, it's 1 Samuel. Before we're even done with 1 Samuel, David is called and anointed. And his first challenge is to go face Goliath. Jesus is baptized and immediately he goes out to the wilderness to face and wrestle with the tempter in the wilderness. He faces and defeats Satan there. In Acts, the church is anointed with the Holy Spirit and then must immediately face threats within and without. And there are so many other stories in between. You know them all. So anointing or being called or being set apart is being set apart to face challenges. It's anointing is ordination for suffering and for spiritual warfare. And many of you have uh, taken us up on the James passage that says, if you're sick, call for the elders and they'll anoint you with oil and lay hands on you. Some of you have come to the elders and asked for that very thing. And I've told you every single time, every one of you who've, who've asked for that, I tell you that anointing is being set apart for suffering. You're being ordained for suffering. That's what anointing is, and that's what it always has been in the, in the scriptures. You are being ordained to fight in a special way against the enemy. So, last week we saw Saul anointed. What's next? Well, we know the Bible, and we know life. We know that immediately following an anointing, we should expect to see an enemy, a threat, a challenge. And that expectation is certainly fulfilled here in, in 1 Samuel. There's an immediate crisis that Samson, I'm Samson, Saul, forgive me. I, I, have I done that throughout this series? If I exchange Saul, I, I start to question myself and doubt my sanity. If I say Saul or Samuel or Samson, let me know and I'll, I'll correct it. Thank you for fixing the, uh, for, for fixing the uh, recording. We're talking about Saul today. Samson also is in this, uh, in this passage. So Saul was anointed, and he immediately faces a challenge. He has to face a threat and defeat that threat before moving on to uh, his, his, his crown. So he's been, he, he's been um, privately recognized as king, as Samuel has anointed him. He's about to be publicly recognized as king, as, as he is recognized before all of Israel. But before he goes on to be crowned, he has to face a challenge. But before we get there, let's, let's um, catch you up. I, I always feel this during a summer series. I feel like I've got to do one of those little, um, you know, before you start a TV show, it always says previously on you know, and you get caught up. So I'll do that real quick to, to make sure we're all caught up to the story. Israel has come to Samuel and they make a premature demand. They say, give us a king. We demand a king. Your sons are taking bribes. We don't think they're doing a good job, Samuel, in your place. We want a king who will go before us and fight our battles for us. A king like the nations. Never mind the fact that they already have a king who will fight their battles. And then, and then Samuel tells them, of course, that king is Yahweh who fights their battles. And Samuel tells them, if you, if you get a king like the nations, this is what he's going to be like. And yet they persist and God grants their request. God tells Samuel, I'm going to reveal to you the man whom, will be, whom you will anoint as, as king. 
And the man that shows up is Saul. When we meet Saul, he's physically perfect. He is like an ideal man. He has a good heart. He's a good and faithful son. The first good and faithful son we've met in 1 Samuel. We saw last week also that he's kind of like a new Adam. He has a, he, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's given a new heart. He, he's a priest. He's a king. He's a prophet. God demonstrated to Saul that he was going to be king by giving him three signs. He said that you're going to have new responsibilities and that I'm going to take care of your physical needs, Saul. He's given bread. Wine is withheld from him. He has work to do, but if he's faithful, he will have wine. That comes with the implicit promise that he will have wine. He will be rewarded. And then he's filled with the spirit and he prophesies. So he'll have all the spiritual gifts that, that he needs. See, those are the three signs that God shows him. You're being given new responsibilities. I'm going to take care of your physical needs. I'm going to take care of all your spiritual needs and give you all the gifts you need for this new calling. And so when Saul gets back home, he's very discreet. He's very demure. He keeps his cards close to his chest and he doesn't tell anybody what happened. And this, this lets us know what kind of man this is. He's not arrogant. He's not boastful. He's very quiet and discreet. And also we saw last week that God graciously listens to the complaints of his people. And despite their terrible timing, despite their real ignorance in asking for a king at this time, God still blesses them and God still gives them a man better than the man that they deserve. Saul is the ideal man for the job. Now, as we just read uh, in chapter 10, verse 17, as we catch back up to, to this week, Samuel gathers the people at Mizpah to publicly reveal God's choice of king to them. Saul has already been anointed privately. Now, this is the public revelation of the man that God has chosen. Now, why does Samuel pick Mizpah? Uh, this is an interesting choice for a gathering place for this occasion. There are a couple of reasons why he might have chosen Mizpah. First of all, this is where Yahweh defeated the Philistines back in chapter 7. You remember that as, as Samuel was offering the sacrifice on the altar, as the people fasted and prayed and renewed covenant, the Philistines thought, oh, they're gathering together again for war. And the Philistines came against them. But as the people were worshiping, God thundered against the Philistines and the Philistines were defeated. Where was that? That was Mizpah. It's the very same place. The people say, we need a king who will fight our enemies. Samuel says, come here to Mizpah. The very place you are standing reminds you that Yahweh is your warrior king. Yahweh will fight your enemies. Back in Judges also, Mizpah was the hometown of Jephthah, the judge, who famously put down the Ammonite threat. The Ammonites were a people from the east who came and pressed on Israel often throughout the time of the judges in this time. Now, there's a little something revealed later on in chapter 12, verse 12. We haven't even got here yet, but here's something that Samuel says a little bit later on. He says to the people of Israel, when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when Yahweh your God was your king. Someone named Nahash the Ammonite has been advancing and threatening. And later on, we find out this was the real reason the people asked for a king. When, when they come back uh, to, to Samuel in chapter eight, remember, they come to Samuel. Why did they ask for a king? What do they list? 
as a reason. Well, they say, Samuel, your sons are not being faithful. Your sons out in the boondocks are taking bribes, and we don't like that, and we don't like you because you're too old, and that's why we need a king. Later on, we find out that there was more to the story. It wasn't just Samuel. It wasn't just his sons. They're afraid of this guy named Nahash, the Ammonite. That's why they asked for a king. So it, uh, we'll see more of these windows into human behavior and, and, and just human nature in this study. But here's one, and we'll see another one before the end of the day. They're afraid about Nahash the Ammonite. But when they come to Samuel, they come slinging accusations against him and his family. When they're really afraid of this thing over here, but for some reason that doesn't come into the conversation. That doesn't, that doesn't fit. When they come, they don't even mention him. It's Samuel mentions him later. Why do they do that? Well, they, they have this artificial pretext. They build this up that Samuel's sons are the reason. Well, um, God knows the real reason. It's because they're afraid of this Ammonite. And Samuel knows the real reason. And so that's why he calls them to Mizpah. The, the, the problem with the sons could have been easily resolved. Just remove them from office and correct the situation. But anyway, we're here at Mizpah because Jephthah, the judge, defeated the Ammonites. And the people are afraid of the Ammonite threat. So not only has God defeated the, the Philistines at Mizpah, Mizpah is also a reminder of the way that he defeated the Ammonite threat in the past as well. So here we gather the people together at Mizpah and we look around and we think, okay, God has already put down the Ammonites and we didn't need a king back then. We had a judge named Jephthah and that's how God put down this threat. Oh, also at this place, God put down the Philistines and we didn't need a king then. We had Samuel and we were obedient and faithful and God put down the Philistines then too. Yahweh's been defeating our enemies this whole time and we've never had a king. The representatives, the judges, the priests that God, give us, uh, God gives us are sufficient. So Samuel calls them together to this place intentionally to remind them of what God has done here in the past. And he takes this opportunity to remind the people how the Lord has delivered them from every oppressor going all the way back to Egypt. You haven't needed a king so far, but now you demand one. So now present yourselves by your tribes and clans. Now it's time for Saul to be publicly recognized and chosen. I'm going I'm to just uh, zip through here a verse or two at a time and make a few comments uh, along the way as, we, as this story unfolds. Verse 20, when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. Now we don't know exac exactly how this worked, but from, uh, from other texts and how we know that the Lord works through his high priest, a high priest would have been here, and at this point, Ichabod or his brother Ahitub are old enough to be high priest. Remember back when Eli and his sons were died, uh, we lost the priesthood. The, the high priest was gone, and we had to start over. Uh, but now Ichabod, the baby who was born when, uh, when Eli died, um, now he's old enough, or he, we find out later he has a brother also. One of these guys are probably high priest at this time. Remember the high priest wore a breastplate called the breastplate of judgment. And that breastplate had 12 stones in it representing the 12 tribes of Israel. It also had a little pouch on it as well containing two mysterious stones, the Urim and the Thummim. And these, um, these stones somehow worked in concert to help 
the high priest make decisions and declare the will of the Lord on certain questions. And we see them used here and there for yes and no kinds of questions. Do this or do that. We don't know how all this worked in concert, but I can guess that whatever they're doing here, like casting lots or, or like uh, discerning the reflections on the, on the stones, the high priest goes down the line and he tries to find the the chosen tribe, and he does it by process of elimination. Is it Reuben? No. Is it Levi? No. Is it Simeon? No. Is it Judah? No. When they get to Benjamin, yes. Okay, we have the tribe. Out of all the tribes of Israel, now we have the tribe. Okay, who in that tribe? Now, it would have been surprising when they landed on Benjamin, to say the least. Just a generation before this, only 600 men were left in the whole tribe of Benjamin. Yet, at the same time, when Jacob blessed his sons back in Genesis chapter 49, he says, Jacob says, Benjamin is a warrior. Here was, here was Jacob's blessing on Benjamin. He says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he shall devour the prey, and at night, he shall divide the spoil. That was, that was Jacob's blessing on his son, Benjamin. And so Israel wants a warrior to fight their enemies. God says, I'll give you one. I'll give you one from the tribe of Benjamin, which is this warrior tribe. So verse 21, when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen and saw that son of Kish was chosen. And when they sought him, he could not be found. So just like the priest went through the tribes, he went through the families. No, 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 no. Yes, yes, this family. Okay, how many sons do you have? No, 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 no. Yes, Saul is the one chosen. Finally, we get a yes. We've narrowed it down from tribe to individual, but Saul isn't there. Where is he? Verse 22. Therefore, they inquired of Yahweh further. Has the man come here yet? And Yahweh answered, there he is, hidden among the equipment. Saul is hiding with the baggage. And all these people have traveled from all over the land of Israel to come here to Mizpah. They've brought their luggage with them. Where is Saul? He's hiding with the bags. This is another display of genuine modesty and humility on the part of Saul. He was intentionally absent when the lots were cast because he knew that he was going to be chosen. This has already been confirmed to him by the Spirit of the Lord. And like Moses is reluctant and like Gideon is reluctant to take on the task that God gives him, Saul is reluctant. He's not a self-promoter. He's not clamoring or clawing for recognition or power or authority. The man you want to be king is the man who is not pushing himself forward, who's not trying to seize the office, because then you think, well, what is his motive? Why does he want this so badly? The man you want for leadership is the man who's a little bit hesitant to take it up. Are, are you sure you want me? I mean, you don't know my frailties. You don't know my sins. You don't know all my shortcomings. If you did, you wouldn't be choosing me. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want me. So it's a man who's a little bit humble, a little bit worried about his own ability. He's not overconfident. He's not over, overly reliant on his own strength. And of course, these men are in short supply always, and certainly in this day. That's what makes Saul perfect for the job. Verse 23. So they ran and brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. 
This is the second time that we've been told about how tall Saul was. Again, he is an ideal physical specimen. They want an impressive king, they've got one. It's notable that he is a, he's a big man, even a giant of a man by Hebrew standards. Why is it important that Saul be tall? Well, he's gonna have to face a giant, isn't he? There's a giant waiting in his future. He's going to have to face Goliath when it comes time. God prepared Saul to face that particular conflict. But of course, between now and the time that he faces Goliath, he is going to fail and he's going to fall and he's going to be compromised. And, uh, and, and his failures are going to mount until that day. And the honor of facing Goliath is going to go to David. And David will show himself to be the greater Saul. Even David uses the iconic Benjamite weapon. Back in Judges chapter 20, we find out that the tribe of Benjamin are these crack shots with uh, slings. We're told that they're left-handed uh, slingshot specialists, that they can hit a target within a hair's breadth. We're told that back in Judges 20. So when David shows up, he shows up using a Benjamite weapon. He's from Judah, David is, but he shows up using a Benjamite weapon, showing that he's the greater Benjamite. He is the greater Saul. He is going to take Saul's place, and Saul will fail to live up to all that he was meant to be. Uh, we'll get to that, of course. But for now, Saul is the man that Yahweh has chosen. He is a giant of a man because he's supposed to face the giants that are out there waiting in Israel's future, and he's the best man for the job. Verse 24, Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom Yahweh has chosen, that there is no one like him among all the people? So all the people shouted and said, long live the king. God has chosen him and the people shout, long live the king. And so we have this pact here. This is, this is the man. Saul is the single best person in all of Israel for this task. At the outset, there's nothing bad about Saul apart from normal human weakness. Now, I'm not just building him up here. I know we spent a lot of time last week looking at his perfections and how good he was for the job, and I'm doing that again this week for a purpose. I want you to see how extraordinary and how exceptional this man Saul was, to see how well he started out. And I want to do this because when it comes time for his fall, I want you to know and feel fully the weight of that crash. I want you to see how far he fell from this grace and favor that he started out in. When um, We don't get that if we kind of gloss over how good of a man he was at the outset. So I want to make sure that we understand that. But now he's been secretly anointed. He's been publicly chosen by the high priest and the people. But his coronation doesn't come yet. He's not yet officially king. He's, he's functioning more like a judge at this point. Something must happen before he's granted the crown. He must fight and prove himself a faithful warrior. Verse 25, Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book and laid it up before Yahweh. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his own house. What does that mean? Samuel explained to them the behavior of royalty. Well, he's probably going back over Deuteronomy 17. He's probably also going back over the thing, the warnings that he gave them back in chapter eight. And then there must have been some kind of arrangement of the 12 tribes now 
uh, with, with their representatives and their judges and their elders, their basic government functions, because now we have a king. We've never had this in Israel before. We've never had centralized authority and power. And there has to be some ordinary way of the king and his authority and, and the, the tribes and their authority and the way that all of these things interact and intersect. We've got to establish the rights of the tribes and we have to establish the power and the authority of the king. And Samuel is the man up to the task. He writes, evidently, a kind of constitution for, for this new arrangement. Verse 26, And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and valiant men went with him, whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, How can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. Now, now this is really... It would be funny if it weren't so sad. This is really, really amazing that some people aren't satisfied yet. They got together. They asked for a king. It wasn't a real righteous request. It wasn't a real timely request, but God answers them. And he answers them with a man better than what they deserve. And they don't like the man that God has given them, some of them. Now, maybe the only thing that satisfies them is being dissatisfied. Maybe the only thing that doesn't disappoint them is being disappointed. There are folks like that. They just like being disappointed. They just like being dissatisfied, and nothing's going to change their mind. I, again, I love these little windows into human behavior. There's nothing new under the sun. And this shows us that you can never appease disgruntled agitators. You can never ever give them what they are, are looking for because they're never satisfied. <laughs> you think that revolutionaries will just shut up and go away if you give them what they're asking for, but no, they come back with another list of demands and another list of demands. Giving them what they want is never enough. Uh, and this is why we see in our society those people who are promoting perversion, it's not like, you know, they come up with a, a list of things that they want and you think, oh, if we just give them this, they'll just shut up and they'll go away. They don't. They're not satisfied. They come back with another list and another list until uh, our, our culture is rotted from the inside out and we've completely conceded to them when we should have just stood our ground and said, no, you're being ridiculous. This is nonsense and we're not going to put up with it. Well, I love Saul's attitude. Uh, they despise him. They disrespect him and he held his peace. Again, Saul is a good man at this point. Now here comes the challenge that we've been waiting for. Verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. Nahash the Ammonite. Nahash, the word Nahash means serpent. It's the exact same word used of serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Now, I, you know, I really love symbolic biblical theology, but sometimes it's too easy. I mean, so it's like, this is too, too easy. Nahash means serpent. We've been waiting for a serpent, and here he is. And guess what his name is? His name is serpent. We have one. We've talked about Saul being the ideal man. Saul is like a new Adam, and now we have a serpent. Let's, let's look briefly at the parallels between Adam and Saul. God breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils, the spirit of life. God also filled Saul with his spirit. We read about that last week. Adam was given every tree for food. God gave Saul a great feast at Samuel's table. And then, and then God gave him bread from his own table. 
Adam was given responsibility to dress and keep the garden. God has shown through many signs that, that God is giving Saul responsibilities to dress and keep the garden of Israel. Adam was giving warning, warnings. Adam was given warnings not to eat from one of the trees of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Saul was given warnings to wait for Samuel before he sacrificed at Gilgal. And also warnings about not walking in the ways of the pagan kings. Adam was given a bride in the garden. Saul is also given a bride to protect and serve. The feast at Samuel's house in the last chapter was very much like a wedding feast as we, as we saw. So the parallels between Adam and Saul are intentional. They are obvious. They are uh, explicit. And now after all that Adam had and all he was given, he was then given the opportunity to show himself as a warrior. Adam was given the opportunity to prove himself as a faithful protector of the bride and a faithful protector of the garden and defeat the serpent. And there we can kind of surmise that maybe if Adam had succeeded, he might've been rewarded with the blessing of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Maybe he would have been crowned with greater glory. Saul is in the same spot, having received the garden and the bride, the warnings and the food and the responsibilities. Now Saul, filled with the spirit, God's breath of life, Saul is given his opportunity to show himself faithful, a warrior against the serpent who just happens to be named Serpent, of course. So here comes Nahash against Jabesh-Gilead. Jabesh-Gilead is a city across the Jordan River on the east side of the, of the Jordan River. Jabesh-Gilead also, incidentally, was a city where the Benjamites uh, gathered a lot of their brides after after the tribe of Benjamin was almost exterminated. Remember they did that thing with the, uh, with the girls dancing around the fire? They got about 200 brides out of that deal. And then they found the rest of their wives in Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead is quite literally a bride city. Nahash, the serpent, is attacking the city where Benjamin got his brides. The tribe of Benjamin got the, his brides to, to be revived. The serpent is attacking the bride city. The serpent very literally is attacking the bride. And so Nahash the Ammonite encamps around the city. He lays siege to the city. And the people within the city say, well, let's make a deal. The, the bride is tempted to, to deal with the serpent, to, to treat with him, to, to come to an understanding. And the people of Jabesh Gilead said, make a covenant with us and we will be your servants. So Nahash is happy to make a deal. Verse two, Nahash the Ammonite answered them, on this condition, I will make a covenant with you that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. <clears throat> Why does he want their right eye? Well, first of all, this is a public humiliation. The Ammonites are great. They're artists at public humiliation. Later on, when David sends ambassadors to the Ammonites, uh, Nahash's son uh, captures the ambassadors that David sends. He shaves off half their beard and he cuts off their robe right around their belly button so that they're naked from the waist down. They have half their beard and he sends them running back to David. They're great at embarrassing, at humiliating God's people. That's, that's what they like doing. This is, their, this is, their, this is what you know, gets their creative juices flowing. How do we embarrass people? So that's the first thing. He, he wants their right eye. It's embarrassing. It's a reproach, he says. But also, 
If you lose an eye, it's hard to fight, especially to aim an arrow or to, or, or to aim a, a, a sling. If you don't have depth perception, you can't fight. Josephus also tells us that Hebrew shields covered the left eye, so you fight with your right. And if you don't have your right eye, well, then you lose that ability as well. So if he puts out the right eyes, he puts down any chance of rebellion or uprising. Verse 3, so the elders of Jabesh said to him, hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. And Nahash agrees. They say, give us seven days. And Nahash says, okay, why does he give them time? Well, it's because siege warfare is time consuming and it's very costly. You have to wait until the city starves itself out. And if there's a spring in the city, and if they had time to get their animals inside the city, they can eat and sustain themselves for a very long time. And if you try to attack a walled city, you're going to lose a lot of men and resources. So Nahash is confident that nobody's going to come to the aid of this city. So maybe I can have the city in seven days instead of seven months or a couple of years. Maybe I can have it next week. So yeah, you want to you wanna go ask for help and then come out and see me? Well, that's just fine. And he agrees. Verse 4. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news and his anger was greatly aroused. This very same thing is said of the judges. The spirit of God comes upon Othniel and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson and emboldens them and they're righteously angry to deliver God's people from the hand of the oppressor. And now this happens to Saul, just like it did the other judges. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of the messengers saying, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of Yahweh fell upon the people and they came out with one consent. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh and they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So it was on the next day, that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Who else separated his army into three camps and then attacked in the third watch, in the morning watch? Well, that was Gideon who did that. And now Saul does the very same thing. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've seen all these little parallels to the judges in the life of Saul, which means that Saul is an heir to the judges. He acts and fights and lives and is filled with God's Holy Spirit, just like the judges. So Saul may be very well the last judge. And as a great judge, he handles the, the serpent who attacks the bride. Saul fights back against the serpent. He crushes his head. He doesn't allow him to succeed. Saul is now ready to be enthroned. We'll wrap it up with these two verses. The people said to Samuel, who is he who said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today Yahweh has accomplished salvation in Israel. 
Yahweh has accomplished the salvation. Saul doesn't take credit for this. He could. He could parade himself and say, look what I just did for you. But he doesn't. He praises Yahweh and says, Yahweh accomplished this deliverance today. And now once again, God has defeated the enemy without a king. Saul isn't crowned yet. Once again, God defeated the enemy and they don't have a king. Saul is functioning as judge and he hasn't doing, Saul isn't doing anything that the judges haven't done in the past. God shows again that he's perfectly capable of dealing with these threats. And also Saul is so humble that when the people say, you know, all those guys who are saying you shouldn't be king, we ought to drag them out here and kill them. And Saul says, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. But yet we see that Saul's kingship was opposed And this is in the category of things that should come as no surprise. Israel asked for a king, they got a king, and that king finds himself rejected by a a portion, a significant percentage of the population. The faithful king causes division. The faithful king suffers rejection from his own countrymen. We're familiar with this story because we're familiar with the gospel. This is what Jesus went through. These fools are rejecting Saul, not just as a person, but also as God's appointed king. This is the man that God has chosen to use to save Israel, but they refuse to submit to him and to follow him. This happens to Saul. We know this will happen to Jesus, who is the perfect king, and nobody has any legitimate reason for not submitting to the Lord Jesus as king. Nobody has any reason that holds any water, that, that, that makes any sense to say, we're, we're not going to follow him. He's not good enough for us. It happened to Saul. It happened to Jesus. And it will happen to you as well when you try to lead in righteousness. When you do what God tells you to do, when you're faithful to lead in whatever capacity God gives you to lead at home, in business, in school, in your community, if you are faithful to lead, you will face opposition. Don't think that you're alone in this. Don't think that opposition must therefore mean that you're doing something wrong. Maybe you are doing something wrong. Be open to correction, but if you aren't sinning, Stick to your guns. Be faithful to the calling and conviction that God has given you. If you lead, you will face opposition. Absolutely. I, that's, that's the way it is. Not only should you not be naive and expect that there will be opposition from within, but there's obviously going to be opposition from without. As I said at the very beginning this morning, you need to know that when you determine to be faithful, when you set out a plan for a new discipline or take on a new responsibility, the serpent will rear his head and he will try to destroy the thing that you have set out to do. Satan is a destabilizer. Satan is a disruptor. He doesn't want you to succeed as long as you're trying to be faithful. The, the only way to never have opposition is to never do anything. That's the only way to never have enemies. Don't do anything and you won't have enemies. Never try anything. Never stick your neck out. Never take risks. That's how to stay outside of the enemy's crosshairs. Stay at home. I don't know, watch TV, but don't do anything. But as soon as you're anointed, as soon as you're called, as soon as you're ordained, as soon as you're commissioned to take on some new responsibility, you must expect that the serpent is not going to like it. And he's going to do everything he can to melt your resolve. Don't give in. Don't give up. Don't stop. Because the serpent is defeatable. 
The serpent can be conquered. That's the biggest lie that he wants us to believe is that he can't be defeated. He is easily defeated in the power and the strength of the Lord. Just as this serpent was defeated by Saul and his army, Jesus has already wrestled and defeated the serpent for us. Don't fall into the same thinking that Israel is so often guilty of, that, well, God delivered us all these other times in all these amazing ways, but he isn't going to deliver us this time. I mean, this challenge is too big for him. Really? Don't be tempted to think, I know we had some miraculous, incredible deliverances in the past, like the last 14 times we got in trouble, God delivered us. But this time, the only way out is if we develop some humanist solution, some, something that depends upon our strength alone, our power, some solution that completely ignores the power of God to accomplish his purposes. Don't, don't, don't think that way. That's why, that's why often when we pray, I, I encourage you, I invite you to pray for things that are impossible for us to do on our own strength. I, I, I want to ask for things that we can't do on our own because it's, it's in God's uh, power and by his authority that anything is ever done, anything is ever accomplished that is worth anything. God has given you, people of God, God has given you his Holy Spirit for these challenges and for these uh, this, this opposition. He strengthens you for this task. When you determine to be faithful, when you determine to be faithful, expect opposition. Expect rejection. If no one is ever opposing you and no one is ever rejecting you, you have to think, am I really being faithful? Am I really fulfilling the commission and the calling God has given me? Or am I just kind of floating along with the current? Saul is called, Saul is anointed, Saul fights a serpent. That's the same story that we face daily. And so in faith and by faith, we have been commissioned to kill serpents every day. Let's do that by his strength. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do praise you and give you thanks for your word. And we pray that this would be an encouragement to us that just as your servant Saul uh, started out so well that he uh, has all of these things, all these gifts you have given him. So may we be responsible with uh, the, the position and the resources and the, the wonderful blessings that you have provided for us. Fill us with your spirit, just as you did Saul, and give us the courage and the strength to face down your enemies. We pray this for us and for our children every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.